Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hola, and welcome to a big interview from the vault. Look, all right, no fooling around. We asked our socios, our members, our supporters at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter to pick their favourite from season two of this long-running and, I have to say, much-loved show. You're about to hear one of the interviews they picked as the best from a selection which included international footballers representing Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Bulgaria, Argentina, England, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Here's what I had to say about this one when we recorded during season 2016-2017. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome to the big interview. Live. Yes. We recorded our first ever live big interview just before Christmas with Neil Lennon at Greenwich Town Hall. The occasion was a fundraising event organised by friend of the podcast, La La Land Liver, Martin Compton, who kindly invited us along. Now, Neil Lennon. We're going to talk tonight to a man who took particular pleasure in tormenting my club throughout his reign as a Celtic manager. Neil Lennon is bright, funny, interesting, multi-talented, and obviously hugely successful as a footballer and a manager. So, to do the big interview live in order to support Art Gowan is a privilege, especially seeing as I can now click my fingers and make a fantastic footballer walk through that door. I hope. Everybody, Neil Lennon. That's the way to welcome a top, top, top man. Lovely. Evening. So, when we, uh, I don't know how many of you listen to the big interview regularly, but when we plan it, and most of it is planned, although it might not seem that way, we always think, Neil, about how do we begin? So I thought the most appropriate way to do it would be to phone up the guy who I thought was most like you. So I phoned Carlo Ancelotti. Hmm. And Carlo said, yes, Neil Lennon reminds me of me. 
You knew that, didn't you? Yeah. Tell me why. Because not everybody will remember the, the current Bayern Munich manager, Carlo Ancelotti, perhaps as anything other than a fantastic football manager. But he was a central cog in several teams, particularly Roma and AC Milan, as they either dominated Serie A or the European Cup. What do you recognise in Carlo's description of your playing style being like his? Well, first of all, it's a massive compliment. It's not the worst, is it? Um, he was part of one of the, the great club sides in European football. He did pay me a compliment. We played AC Milan, I think, in 2005. And uh, he singled me out as being a player that he admired. So as far as that's concerned, you know, it's, it's very flattering. Um, and maybe the, we are similar types, you know, that sort of... I mean, he was quite barrel-chested, but he was a great technician as well. Um, probably a little bit quicker than me as well. He read the game very well, and, you know, his range of passing was, was excellent, probably a lot better than mine, but for him to even say that I reminded him of himself, like, you know, was, was a great fill-up before the game. Here's what I read into it, is that Carlo Ancelotti was a midfielder who not only did his own work really well, but ensured that with his positioning, his reading of the yeah. game, as you mentioned, he made other people's jobs a little simpler around him. And that doesn't just come from ability or intelligence. You need to be a generous footballer. Is that what you felt? Did you try to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's a rule that uh, you grow into as you evolve as a player. Um, and Martin, um, particularly when I went to Celtic, you know, sort of told me that's the position he wanted me to play. You just sort of patrol the pitch and see the danger, break up the play, you know, and keep, you know, the attacks going. Um, he had that as a player at Nottingham Forest with John McGovern, you know, who Cluffy had. You know, John McGovern was that type of player. Not fussy, didn't steal the limelight or anything like that, but he was Brian Clough's captain, so he played such a huge role. And I had 10 years under Martin, whether it be at Leicester or Celtic, and, um, you know, I didn't know I was doing well. He'd pick me every week, so I must have been doing something right. Um, and, yeah, you had your glamour players, you had your Moravchiks, your Larsons, your Suttons, but you need a player like, you know, the modern day, you know, there's a Makaleli, there's a Gattuso, that type of player. I think every team needs one of those as well, just to, you know, mind the ship, really. It's handy that you mentioned Martin O'Neill, because he was going to come up anyway. I'd like to say I phoned Leo Messi to ask him about you. But if I had phoned him, he'd have been a bit miffed, because it's world famous that Messi signed for Barcelona at a time when the club wasn't very clever, they weren't backing him, he was a young kid, tiny, and he was forced to sign his first contract on the back of a paper napkin yep. in the Vesuvius Tennis Club. Um, <laughs> how did you first get your terms of contract from, from Martin O'Neill when he came to visit you? Mine was a bit more glamorous. It was on the back of a pizza box. <laughs> I, um, at the time, I was living with a friend, just renting a, a, a terrace, and Martin O'Neill described it as a hovel which was quite flattering, actually. Um, so it was like just men behaving badly, really, you know. There was, we didn't cook, you know, certainly didn't clean. And I had um, spoken to Coventry. Ron Atkinson was the manager. I was playing for Crew at the time. Uh, they bid 750000 for me. Uh, went to meet Ron Atkinson. Thought, yeah, I mean, it's Premier League. It's a great opportunity for me. Um, he got me tickets for a game that night. It wasn't far from where I was living. They were playing Man City at Main Road in the Cup. 
So I went along to the game and then went home and had a couple of beers with my mate to celebrate going to Coventry the next day for a medical. And then I got a phone call from Jim Melrose, who I don't know if many people know Jim, played for Partick Thistle, Celtic, Man City, Leicester, Charlton, among other clubs. Good striker. Yeah, Jim was looking after a little bit of my affairs at the time. And he rang me and he said, um, what are you doing? I said, I'm sitting in the house. He said, um, right, don't move. I said, why? I said, I've got Martin O'Neill in the car. And John Robertson. And I went, right, they want to come and speak to you. I said, right. I said, what about? He says, what do you think, you idiot? You know, we want, them, we want you to go to Leicester. I said, right, okay, bring them up. So we're busy trying to... <laughs> was there much tidying up to do? <laughs> yeah, there was a lot, yeah. The rats had left in disgust. <laughs> so we're there, like, right. you know, just, you know, you, at least you can see your feet on the floor, you know what I mean? Vaguely. So when he came, this whirlwind of a man, you know, and... Lenny, nice to meet you, nice to meet you, nice to meet you. Martin always repeated himself three times when he was excited. <laughs> how are you, how are you, how are you, pal? How are you? <laughs> and then John Robertson came in after with a long coat on and the fag. Did he sell you a dummy at the time? Because oh, uh, yeah. He didn't, yeah. Oh. With an ebrius on. Oh. And for the next 20 minutes, he basically sold Leicester City to me, who were in the championship. He said, we think you've got great potential. We think we can get promoted this year. We think you could be an integral part of it. Um, and that night changed my life. You know, just one of those moments in your life that you look back on and say, bang, that was the moment that changed your life completely. And Jim had said to me, before Martin had come in, he says, right, what a Coventry offer you? I said, £1,000 a week and 100 grand signing on fee. He says, we tell him it's 1,500 quid a week and 150 grand signing on fee. So when Martin actually asked me, I went bright red. <laughs> I didn't want to lie to him, like, you know, but I was almost at the office on um, 1,500 quid a week. Oh. <laughs> Pardon? Uh, 1,500 pound a week. Oh, was all right. So he's looking for paper and pen and he can't find any. And there's this Domino's pizza box and he just ripped off the back of it. And he wrote down what he was going to offer me on a three-year contract, £1,800 a week, £200,000 over the three years. And I looked at it and went, wow. Because it was life-changing, you know. I was on buttons of crew. I was living in a rented accommodation with my pal. Um, And this was life-changing for me. So we took a walk around the block with Jim. He says, what do you think? I says, well, it's fantastic. And his enthusiasm is overwhelming. But... You know, still got the problem with Coventry. He says, well, just ring them and tell them you're not coming. Tell them you changed your mind. So I agreed that night with Martin. Went back to the crew the next day, told them I wasn't taking the deal. Dario wasn't very happy at the time. Mm. And then two weeks later, um, the Leicester deal come through. And that was in February. In the, Mar- in the May, after a horrendous start, and I have to tell you, Graham, there was pitch demonstrations against Martin wanting him out. Um, after about nine or ten games I'd been there but he, he stayed really strong he said look we've got ten games to go we'll win nine get into the playoffs we'll get promoted you can take the glory now but when we get promoted I'm taking all the glory because you lot are giving me all the flack at the minute and he, to be fair we did we went nine games unbeaten made the playoff and beat Crystal Palace in the final we've got a big privilege I was praising you before you came on stage because you're a very very good footballer very successful football manager 
But the part of the privilege that people like you share with all of us and everybody listening is that you've experienced this man. So we know Martin O'Neill is tremendously able, successful. But you, th- you said things like whirlwind or I was overwhelmed. Just try and put into context what it felt like that night. You've said what happened. When you're first exposed to this force of nature, because he is, and it touches on what great managers do in any sport, because it isn't simply figuring out the opposition, or telling you who plays where, or picking the 11. It's it's inspiring men and women. That man management, that ability to reach in and touch your soul, reach your brain. That first experience of Martin, what what was it like, the impact of it? It was exhilarating, you know, and I didn't sleep much that night. just that persona he had, you know, and even when he managed, you know, when he walked into the dressing room, that was it, you knew he was in the room, everyone switched off, he would speak to you for a couple of minutes, and then he would go again, and his style was very much man management, but he was brilliant at it, and there was days you'd be walking into the club and he'd make you feel that big, and then other days he'd make you feel that big, so you never knew where you were with him, you know, he never socialised in the 10 years, he never socialised with him. But there was a, a method to it, you know, there's a method, he, he was a deep thinker about the game. I mean, I'll give you an example. The year we got promoted with Leicester, um, the following pre-season, we got into the Premier League for the first time myself, Muzzy Izzet, you know, the likes of, uh, later on, Steve Guppy and Matt Elliott. And we'd all played in the lower leagues. Emil Heskey was breaking through at 17, 18. Um, so all pre-season, we played four at the back. And then Thursday, before the season started, we were going to Roka Park to play Sunderland. And on the Thursday, he signed Spencer Pryor, centre-half from Norwich, and Casey Keller, an American goalkeeper. So we go up to Roka Park, reads the team out, 3-5-2. <laughs> never worked on it, never practised it. But his psychology was, you're good players, trust the system, we trust you to do it. We got a draw. And then our next game was a home win against Southampton. And then we never looked back after that. And I think for about, for all this time at last, we played three at the back. And certainly for a concerted period of time at Celtic, it was three at the back as well. But, you know, everyone talks about, you know, you've got to put this into practice and practice and practice. And there is obviously room for that, Graham. But that wasn't Martin's way. He put the responsibility, he picked good players. Then he put the responsibility on you. Yes. Let's... Think about picking good players but, then. But because in, just sorry for interrupting. He obviously had thought about it, and he obviously had looked at the squad, and he had thought we may struggle with the back four. And you're looking at your midfield of myself, is it Gary Parker? You know, maybe Guppy would be better as a wing back going forward. He had three centre halves; he could head the ball. His, his template was to have centre halves, you know, big and strong. You know, a dog in midfield, and always a big strength. Just define that. I mean, like, over and over again, we hear football terminology. Now, you said a dog in midfield. Uh-huh. Just break down what you mean by well, that. Obviously, someone who, like, you know, will do the, the dirty work, you know, break up the play, read the game, you know, that sort of role that I had, uh, whether it be at Leicester or Celtic, um, just scurrying around the pitch, you know, plugging in gaps when people went forward, or if there's, there's a counter-attack on, being the first line of defence to protect the centre-halves, and very rarely did I go ahead of the ball. My, my role sort of, at Leicester, was a little bit more forward thinking, but certainly at Celtic with the players that he had in an attacking sense, 
It was more to just sit in front of the, the back three or the back four, whoever it was, and just patrol in there. So when he asks these things of players like you, or doesn't matter if it's Guppy or Claridge or Didier Gatt, whoever it is, the central issue is that he has to have picked well enough to find somebody who's got the right character but the right ability so he can pass the responsibility to them. I want to try and draw a line between the guy that taught him and then he's taught you and then you, I think, have replicated some of the... I think there's a line from Clough. Obviously, Martin played under Clough, mm-hmm. but I'm not just saying that. I would say that two things link Clough and Martin and then Martin and you. Certainly, I think that Brian and Martin have what I like in what I think is not exclusive to British people but eccentricity there is or idiosyncrasy yes and a a happiness to exude that idiosyncrasy maybe I would include myself as as an eccentric in this as well but also picking horse flesh you named John McGovern not everybody will remember John McGovern but John had been at Derby when Clough won the title there John's a bankery boy an unobtrusive footballer, but very bright, and lifted the European Cup as captain twice. And what Brian Clough at Nottingham Forest, you know very well, did was he picked people like Kenny Burns or Larry Lloyd, who many clubs would say, well, that, that guy's maybe finished or not good enough or hasn't got the pace, and he made one of the most extraordinary teams in British history. Mm. And then Martin has patently got that same ability to touch people that Clough did. You've got that. It's a central part of your repertoire as a footballer and as a manager but also all three of you I think pick players really shrewdly um, first of all do you accept that genealogy from Clough to Neil to you and secondly will you help us a little bit by talking through maybe what Clough or Martin or you did in that horse flesh, that selecting a footballer and saying that's the right one whether it's Muzzy Izzy, whether it's Chris Sutton whether it's how you picked up Van Dijk or Wanyama or Fraser Foster, whatever do you see the point I'm making? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to know in the modern day the personality of the player. Sometimes I think back in Mr. Clough's day, I think the personalities, certainly Peter Taylor would have done a little bit of groundwork on that. I think with recruitment now, you can, a lot of people delve into the background of players and, and stuff like that. In terms of uh, what Martin did, I think he came to watch me about five or six times before he decided to Personally. push the button. Yeah, um, and the same a muzzy, and obviously he was getting reports in. But what he did, he nurtured it as well when we got there, Graham. He nurtured us, and or we might have had the character, but we grew with him, if you know what I mean. We grew in the, his style of thinking and the, his style of play. And I think that's what Martin does brilliantly is um, he gets players on side very quickly. I mean, at the minute, the Republic of Ireland is sitting more or less top of the group with, well, you wouldn't say a team full of superstars, but somehow he's able to tap into that group and, and get the best out of them. I think Brian Clough is a genius. And I think you'd be stupid not to take things from Brian Clough, and I would be very, very remiss if I didn't take things from Martin O'Neill and his, whether it be his style, his psychology, the way he thought about the game, the way he looked at the game. Um, now he wasn't on the tuning ground every day you know he would leave that to the likes of Steve Walford and John Robertson but certainly he knew everything that was going on and come match day that's when he really came alive why, why would that be not on the, that seems odd at face value you're a manager you want to see your players every day 
Does it create um, a gap so that he can assess and stand back? Does it stop familiarity breeding contempt? What's the reason, do you think? I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think familiarity breeds contempt. I think if you hear the same voice every day, you know, again and again and again, it, it does lose the impact. Um, whereas he always had impact whenever he spoke or whenever he gave you a bollocking. You know, you, you had to listen and take it on board. Um, but a very, very astute guy. I had 10 wonderful years with him and they were very, very successful. And certainly the majority of the stuff that I do as a manager, you know, stem from Martin. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. uses language well, which um, you were born with too. You're smart and articulate. Is that something that's... I don't think that happens all the time in football. A lot of people express themselves in football terminology all the time. You use language well. That's a key thing about getting through to a footballer rather than the days where you could bully footballers or lose your temper and give them a bollocking all the time. Given that the majority of them are multimillionaires now, you can't do that. Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on with that. And I've learned that as I've gone along in management, that they're a different generation from us now. You know, the modern day footballer from like 15 years ago, and I'm sure guys 15 years before I played were saying the th- same thing about us. And you do have to um, handle with care sometimes. You know, there still is room for a bit of the hairdryer treatment. And when I was certainly at Celtic, I was very much young and wanting to make an impression and a bit of a firebrand. But I think as you grow older, you know, when I came into Hibs, I was very much using the same sort of philosophy, but it wasn't working. And I said to my assistant one day, I said, look, I'm going to have to take the foot off the pedal a little bit because I'm not getting through to these guys with the, you know, if I'm scaring them. I feel like I'm scaring them. You know, whereas 15 years ago, you'd have took it on board and gone, right, I'll show you. They're a different generation now. When we were playing and, uh, you know, we're talking about modern-day football. We're talking about Scottish football. And everyone says, Graham, we played football morning, noon, and night. 
on the streets, on the gravel, on the shale, on the, on the greens and estates. It's impossible to do that now. And there are all, all these facilities for kids now. But they're getting coached to death. And um, I, I worry that the natural instincts is being coached out of them at an early age. And then they become sanitized. The academies are full. I think they're oversaturated with ordinary players. You know, we've tried different blueprints. We've looked at the Spanish model. We've looked at this model. And really, we should go back to basics. And I came in one day to Celtic on a day off. And uh, I said, uh, I wanted to watch the under-21s training. Just, and they were off. So I said to myself, you know, where's the under-21s? And Jim McGuinness was you know, working with the younger players and he came to me and he said, look, my, my concern is having viewed it for a while, we're creating mini-me's. Mm. You know, they're creating, they're copying what the first team are doing. Now, that's all well and good, but the first team at Celtic would play 50, 60 games a season. These kids would play half of that. So they should be working twice as hard. No question. They should be working twice as hard. And they're not. And I think that was a big wake-up call for for a lot of people, um, certainly with the under-21s anyway. Um, and I, I, you would have a kid, say, at Celtic, or a kid at Park Thistle, or a kid at Ross County, in the academy system, and they train maybe two, three times a week. They don't play for the boys' club, don't play for the school, so they're training with a professional club. And they're doing maybe two sessions a week, Graham. Now, how much of the ball they get in the sessions, I don't know. Because some days I used to see pitches like Presswick Runway with cones everywhere and everything sort of done to the specifics of the coach. And then, say that Selig were playing Ross County, they'd travel up to Ross County and the kid would be in the squad and he would get maybe 15 minutes. Now, I'm not just talking about Selig, I'm talking about the game in general. So that kid in that week has had 15 minutes of football and two training sessions. Whereas we... When we were growing up, we were playing school football, boys club football. I was writing this week about Ronaldo winning the Ballon d'Or. The only Scottish Ballon d'Or winner comes from my city, Dennis Law, Aberdeen. Born with a squint, a terrible squint, such that when Huddersfield signed him, and it was Bill Shankly, like, they thought they got the wrong fella, literally. He was that scrawny, and he couldn't see properly out of one eye. Leo Messi, everybody knows he was so small, he had a growth, uh, slowness in growth, so he had to take growth hormones. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been a professional footballer. It was painful, he had to self-inject. People forget Ronaldo had open heart surgery at 15. Now you, you went through, because of exactly what you're talking about, as a kid you overplayed mm. to the extent that it damaged your spine. So you had to go through that process of spinal surgery. Yeah. Which, one, tests your fortitude as a man, or as a young man then, but presumably having been through that, you can relate to whatever happened to Dennis Law, to Messi, to Ronaldo, going, right, if this is fixed, here's what I'm going to do with my life and with my ability. Do you recognise that? Yeah, basically I was at the bottom of the food chain. Um, by the time I had the surgery, I was at crew. We got relegated to Division 2. and I got player of the year that season, but I was told halfway through the season that I was going to need spinal surgery um, where they take a sliver of bone off your hip and fuse it into your back and um, I thought well that's okay it's, it's a back operation it'll not take long so I asked the specialist how long I'll be out for and he said you know you would be out for 18 months and at 19 that is you know devastating you know I'd already had a disappointment of being released by Man City 
you know, I thought I'd found a good home with crew and then to be told that I was going to be out for 18 months, it was a lifetime. And it, it, was, it put me in some really uncompromising positions. I had to wear a corset for six months, ladies. Um, I had a big plaster cast around me for, for three months where I, I convalesced at home, really. I was in the hospital for two weeks. I had my 20th birthday in a hospital ward, lying on my side, eating a, eating a Chinese. The way back was a long, long way. The way back, just the plane was a long way. The way back to where I wanted to get to was, you know, a lifetime away. But, you know, I had to do the work. Crew looked after me really well. I, I did a lot of work in a, in a pool on my own where you were just running with an aqua jogger on length after length after length. Um, gym work. I ended up getting quite stocky around the upper body and, because I was doing a lot of gym work. And all that time I'm watching the games and it was really frustrating um, and then my first couple of games back after a long long time out uh, obviously you're very rusty we were playing Rochdale on a typical Friday night like this at Scotland where they didn't have changing rooms they just poured the cabins it's pissing down the rain it's soaking and we are a crew who like to play good football and Rochdale are you know up and at them sleeves rolled up and then a player called Sean Reed, who's Peter Reed's brother, and he had legs like tree trunks, just like his brother. And 15 minutes into the game, he just went through me like a hot knife through butter. And up I went, and I went bang on my back. And you're lying there going, well, this will test it. So I got up, nothing wrong with me, felt fine. And that was it, I was away again. And that was basically getting over the rehab, getting over the mental sort of worry about how the back was going to fare up and that so that tackle more or less gave me a lot of confidence after that Adversity I think makes the man and, and that's just about as tough as it gets when you, you fear for your mobility yeah. as well as your profession Your record with Barcelona is it's quite extraordinary as a player and a manager but by the time you're, you're managing against them so Tito's taken over from Pep yeah. the side the first half of that season I want to put in context what you faced the first half of Tito Villanova's league season was just they set all kinds of records goals, points undefeated till January they were very, 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 very good and the two games that you you managed Celtic against them the two one at the camp now I want to talk about not just the famous make Rod cry um, Tony Watt goal because I spoke to Victor Wanyama recently he talked about your game plan talked about how efficient you were on the night and in the camp now you had them on the racks it was a very late goal that turns the tie for them mm. how did you plan it what was your strategy what were your feelings coming away from the match irrespective of having not got the, the point well we played in Paisley on the, on the Saturday lunchtime and then myself and you on the Albi we got a flight out to Deportivo so we played Deportivo La Coruña away and we get to the stadium and it's amazing like going to a Barcelona game just you're literally you're watching the great entertainers in, in, your, in your sport and there's thousands outside there's throngs of people outside just waiting on the bus turning up so we get into the stadium and after 10 minutes it's 3-0 Messi scored 2 and uh, I think David Villa scored so I turned around to Johan and went shall we go now because we are in trouble here <laughs> The game ended up 5-4, Graham. Yeah. I don't know if you remember it. Yeah. And the four goals Deportivo scored, one was an own goal, one was from a corner, one was a penalty, and one was a free kick. So straight away you're thinking, 
set plays. And you're also thinking there's no way you can play against this team. If you want to try and play football against this team, you're going to commit suicide. And Sir Alex Ferguson rang me and he said, look, if you want to have a look at how to play against them, watch Mourinho's Inter Milan team mm. in 2010. They were 3-1 up from the first leg and he had world-class players like Matarazzi, Snyder, Etu, Diego Melito. Mata gets sent off after five, six minutes. Mata again for Inter. So they're playing with ten that day. Unbelievable. Yep. Well, basically, he camped in the first third of the pitch and made Barcelona play wide and force him into crosses um, and just made sure that the central area was really compact and try and force him in, you know, wide, the fullback, make sure that the guy coming in was picked up and the fullbacks weren't getting beyond. And if they were, get in the right position to defend crosses. Now, they hung on and hung on, they lost 1-0. But the first 20 minutes, and I'm talking about world-class players in Inter Milan, the possession stats were 82% the Barcelona and 18% the Inter Milan. So I'm thinking, well, if it's good enough for these guys, it's good enough for us. We went in with the Samaras. Now I needed an out. You need an out ball. And Samaras was perfect. You know, at times he played left wing for Celtic, but in the World Cups and in Euro Championships, when he was really in the mood, he could be a real handful. And when you're under pressure, and eventually your brain starts to get scrambled and frazzled, you kick the ball down the channels. And Samaras was great at taking us up the pitch so you're not simply giving it away he's got to get in there try and win it hold it make it difficult for Barcelona to come back the other and they way had, they had Mascherano and they, you know we told him to play as much as he could on Mascherano because mm. he was quicker than him and obviously he's a lot taller mm. and you could hit his chest you know you could back into Mascherano try and stay away from PK as often as possible now it's all good in theory practice is a different thing however we could have been a goal down after two or three minutes so actually Sanchez broke in between Ambrose and Kelvin Wilson and Foster made a brilliant save but after that we settled and then we get a free kick and we're looking at them we studied them zonally you know they had Mascherano they didn't have a big team Xavi Iniesta Jordi Alba take PK out of the equation we got a chance after 20 odd minutes we go a goal up free kick comes in Samar asks set play like a Deportivo set yeah. play and it's so important the score first because it gives you something to hold on to it gives you belief and to be fair I had gone with two centre forwards Graham I went with Gary Hooper as well and I played Hooper almost as a, a third midfield player because I needed someone eventually to get up and join in because the rest of them would have been Dead it's, a, it's, it's a long way back when you're chasing the ball as much as you do against those guys and we, we, were, we were okay, as, as comfortable as you could be. And then in the blink of an eye, just around the 18-yard box, it was like machine gun. Xavi, Iniesta, Messi, back to Xavi, goal. Right on half-time. And I've come in at half-time and said to Johan, could we have done anything about that? He said, everyone was in the right position. Mm. It's just brilliant play Genius. from them. Yeah. It's just brilliant. It's only them could score that goal. So we had to pick them up again. And of course the next 10-15 minutes are vital stay in the game we did that you always have to rely on your goalkeeper to play well and Foster was magnificent and you're thinking you're looking at the clock every couple of minutes 90 minutes you're thinking are we going to do this and then 93rd minute 
last chance, we've switched off. Alba gets in round the back of James Forrest and, and sticks it in. So, you know, you're devastated. Not for yourself, for the players, because they'd given everything. So we got them into the dressing room afterwards and said, look, you've been brilliant. You got them again in two weeks. Just hold on to this feeling of how close you've been to getting a really, really special point against the greatest team in the world. Hold on to that feeling of how you're feeling now and use it as your motivation in a fortnight. Because you've, you've had a good look at them now. You know, it's going to be, again, monumental effort to take something off this team, but you've shown tonight you're capable of doing that. And, and we did. That was the platform for the night that Victor scores, Tony Watt scores, Rod Stewart cries. It, as, a, as a manager, as somebody, because you're managing the club you love and you support. Yes. Does, do, do football nights come more satisfying or emotional than that? Are there things you would change about that victory um, when you beat a team that, that, that can't get past you? It seemed like there was 11 against 14. So I was on top of the tactics, on top of the goals, the work ethic was extraordinary. Something about, that I touched on earlier about what Brian Clough had, what Martin O'Neill had, that platform you gave your players is saying, this was about the performance, not the 2-1 defeat. We can take that and you can do it again, but better. Does it come much more satisfying as a... No, I don't think so. Not, not for the relativity of the job in terms of where we were and where we had come from in the previous two years. So that was, you know, a defending moment. But at the end of the game, it was like just unbelievable euphoria. And I'm walking up the tunnel thinking, right, and this is the way managers think, there's no point in beating Barcelona if you're not going to qualify for the last 16. So I really didn't take in the magnitude of the, the night until maybe a day or two later, you know, and the phone's ringing and everyone's your best friend and everyone, Elton John rang me, you know. <laughs> I got home and Mrs. says, Elton John's been on the phone. He said, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> Swear to God, I. He was on his way to Australia to do a tour. He said, I just wanted to ring you and congratulate you. I followed your career. I think it's a brilliant night. And then we did qualify for the last 16, which was the icing on the cake, really. It justified beating Barcelona then. You know, we got 10 points out of the group and no one gave us a prayer, really. And um, it's, it's all about the players, though. You know, any manager will tell you that. You can have your game plan, you can have your, your training, you can have your tactics. But it's, it's getting into the players' minds that they're capable of doing it. And, um, you know, we built a really good team. You know, your Wanyamas, your Fosters, Joe Ledleys. Van Dijk, he came later. He was a real friend as well, obviously. Victor can play. Victor's been very, very special. He's very good, isn't he? A very special player. He, he, there's things so he does... That you did. Yeah, but he does it better. You know, he's a better athlete. Technically, for a big guy, he's got real soft feet. And, you know, he, people just bounce off him. On that night, you know, he was sensational. He's a kid, really, you know, in a man's body, you know. But on the pitch, he was an absolute assassin. Neil Lennon, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true. Graham Hunter and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast 
and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson.